Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me, as he is each week, is Tim Nudd. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we've also got back our digital executive editor, Stephanie Patrick. How are you, Steph? I'm doing great. How are you, David? I'm good. Exciting to have you back on the podcast, and uh, senior editor covering the agency beat and editor of our agency spy blog and author of our cover story this week, Patrick Coffey. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. How are you, David? I'm good. Is this your first time on the podcast? This is my second time on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, what, what did we have you on to talk about last time? I can't remember. It's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> it's just staring blankly into the distance. I remember it was at Christmas time. Yes, oh. yes, it was. Uh, oh, okay, I think that might have been. It was Agency of the Year. All right. Agencies of right. the Year. Right. I mean, yep. don't get me wrong. It was a memorable moment. Locked in my <laughs> mind forever. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us this week. Uh, I'm a, I'm a little uh, a little groggy. It's It was flew back from L.A. last night and uh, didn't get in until very early. But I, I'm, I'm feeling caffeinated and rejuvenated now. So I think we'll be okay. Um, let's see. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got Snap Inc., a parent company of Snapchat, has got their IPO coming up fast and furious. And so we've been covering that quite a bit in terms of uh, where Snapchat stands right now and spectacles. And uh, is it still kind of the hottest app on the market? Uh, it's certainly getting a run for its money from Instagram uh, again. And uh, so we'll be talking about that in just a minute. Uh, we've, we're going to talk about uh, a new initiative Oprah's got that's kind of funny and part of a trend that uh, I don't think many of us saw coming. Uh, and we're going to talk about a uh, some interesting new data that shows that native advertising is not being as transparent uh, as the FTC would uh, like it to be. And so we're going to look at that and some of those trends. But then we're also going to talk about our... Uh, cover story this week, which I mentioned that Patrick wrote, uh, which is about how agencies are kind of learning from the Trump election, from what they don't know about middle America and about red states. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be talking about that and also our agency's 3.0 list. Uh, let's say roster we did of agencies that are kind of trying new things uh, and uh, new structures, new operations. Some are new, some are old, uh, but uh, it's a pretty fascinating list. So we'll be talking about a few of our favorites uh, from that. But first, the news. So, as I mentioned, Snap Inc.'s IPO is coming soon, and uh, it is obviously one of the hottest IPOs in tech in quite a while. Uh, there's been a, a few interesting angles on this that have come up lately. One is just uh, that Instagram, owned by Facebook, of course, has really eaten some of Snapchat's lunch with uh, its Instagram stories. 
Uh, I know, uh, Stephanie, you can talk about this a bit just from our own internal purposes. It seems like your team, which runs our, our social channels and our art, uh, that they really feel like uh, that Instagram stories is a little more of where it's at right now. Is, is that right? Absolutely. I would say a lot of people I know right now, just you know, friends, family, as well as colleagues, um, have been really excited about Instagram stories. And I know a number of people who were really avid Snapchat users um, who have completely abandoned the platform, you know, and moved over to Instagram. Since they're already Instagramming, they've got now this very similar functionality with Instagram stories. I think it's becoming a bit more of a one-stop social, social shop. Um, I know internally, you know, we've had a lot of debate over the last year or two about um, is it worth it to put the effort and manpower uh, behind creating things for, for Snapchat. And I think a lot of agencies and brands are in a similar position. Um, you, you know, it, it takes a little extra effort. You have to take, I think, an artisanal approach to creating for Snapchat because you've got the vertical video, you've got, you know, time constraints of like 10 seconds. Um, and so it, it, it takes, you know, time and money and resources to create for that. And I think a lot of us have been wondering, will Snapchat stick around long enough for it to be worth that effort or not? Now, you know, I guess somewhat to their credit, Snapchat has, uh, they kind of learned from Facebook's lesson and very early on said, this is not a platform for brands and for organic content from companies. You know, it's a platform for uh, messaging between people and then brands can buy uh, ad placement. They can be part of the Discover platform for media. And so I think, you know, a lot of brands still wanted to do it the old fashioned way and the way that we, I mean, we as a media company that's not in the Discover platform, uh, we like using it uh, for organic content. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's never really been a priority of theirs. And uh, and that's, you know, kind of been one of the obstacles that's held uh, Snapchat back in terms of, you know, brands want a little of both. Uh, they want the organic. They want the paid options. And Snapchat has very explicitly been all about the paid uh, we talked about in uh, in our story this week that uh, agencies were kind of caught off guard by Snapchat's aggressive ad expansion late last year, uh, which uh, we covered when uh, they made the switch when they kind of opened up their API last summer, uh, right around Cannes, uh, the Cannes Lions. And uh, they really wanted advertisers to come in full bore. But the problem is, you know, as Steph mentioned, it really requires uh, a lot of custom content. Uh, it was very difficult for agencies that had had this, you know, these campaigns in the works for quite a while to suddenly shift gears and say, oh, okay, we'll make vertical content. We'll make this very specifically Snapchat friendly uh, kind of uh, content. Patrick, you talk to agencies all the time. Have you gotten a sense of kind of where they stand on the, the coolness and the fruitfulness of Snapchat? I believe there's a lot of skepticism, certainly within creative agencies. Um, they see it as sort of the latest fad, but then there's there's a lot of disagreement over Facebook, too. And then you see, um, I think Martin Sorrell today talked about how much WPP puts into Facebook, and it's a massive total. So um, there's still that uh, lack of a connection between Snapchat and uh, sales, I think, that's probably why the agencies remain skeptical. And I, and I think the reality is that people want, uh, you know, whether whether this is the right thing or not, I mean, it, companies want their media buys to be convenient. You know, they want the, to be able to create one cohesive message and then push it out to as many platforms as possible. Uh, and Snapchat, you know, that's 
not the case. It really does require a specific. Now, there, there's arguments in favor of that. I mean, you could say, well, that makes it more potent, and hey, you shouldn't be lazy about it. But on the other hand, I think it's a bad combination to have Instagram stories coming along uh, and Instagram finally making quite a few uh, service upgrades. They added carousel photos for users, which advertisers have had access to for a while. But, you know, Instagram's finally kind of coming around to listening to its its users and adding more features. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a rough period uh, for Snapchat. And uh, they're also growing with uh, older, uh, you know, older users, uh, which is good and bad. It helps your numbers as it has for Facebook, but it also saps your coolness. Uh, so uh, check out all, all of our coverage on Snapchat. We're going to be, uh, we've been covering this quite a bit. We've got uh, two reporters at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona as we speak, and Snapchat is a very hot topic there right now. So definitely check out adweek.com for lots of coverage on that uh, specifically and uh, from throughout uh, Mobile World Congress in the next few days. Uh, one very uh, different story, but one that kind of, uh, what we found pretty interesting is that Oprah uh, is going to be doing a cruise. Uh, this is not her own cruise ship. She's partnering with Holland America. Uh, it's something that Paula Deen's done, Ron Gronkowski's done, uh, that you know, there's been these very different, obviously, celebrity cruises. Uh, we have a great story by Robert Clara, one of our branding uh, reporters, who uh, basically looked at how, uh, according to the way, the way the story was passed on to us, is that uh, Oprah kind of she did 200 magazine cover photo shoots in a year and just kind of got tired of being under these heavy lights on these sound stages and wanted to get out and go explore. Uh, so she's basically doing this, I believe, in Alaska cruise with a lot of their super fans uh, and some media and basically just get out. And she said that she's kind of committing to uh, exploring. Uh, Steph, any thoughts on this? This seems like a, a, a smart move and an understandable one. I mean, I, I, I've always felt that, like, for celebrities, especially media celebrities like her, it must be kind of claustrophobic uh, to just be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> grinding out this stuff every day. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story because I think a lot of people's first reaction will be, wait, what? Like, Oprah is doing a celebrity cruise? Um, when our, our reporter, uh, Robert Clara, was working on it, he called me over to his desk and said, when I say celebrity cruise, like, what kind of celebrity do you think of? And I was like, new kids on the block. It was like the first <laughs> thing I thought about. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Um, so, you know, the, I think we tend to associate celebrity cruises with slightly B-list celebrities. Um, and it's certainly an interesting move for Oprah to be doing this. But it, it, if you dig into it, it, it makes sense. There's a two-year advertising deal uh, tied up tied up in this. Um, so, you know, Oprah, the magazine, and her network have partnered with Holland America Line on this. Um, it, it certainly makes sense for Holland America in that they're, you know, trying to convert a lot of people who have never taken a cruise in their life into, you know, becoming cruisers. Um, makes sense for Oprah because it does tie in with her editorial mission of having a year of adventure. She went to the Grand Canyon for one of her cover shoots. I think she went to Alaska. You know, now she's taking this cruise. There is one disclaimer everyone should know. The cruise is seven days long, but Oprah will only be there for two days. So they're, they're you know, not everyone will get to touch Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Just picture her, like, walking across the deck with her hands outraged, like, <laughs> <laughs> like brushing fingertips. People, you get a cruise. swooning. <laughs> well, people are skeptical, but if you're Oprah, you can do anything. I don't know if you guys saw this, but this morning on Bloomberg, she said that she's reconsidering whether to run for president. Oh. For real? I didn't see that. Yes. Oh, man. 
I'd vote for Oprah. She would have to divest herself from so many different companies. <laughs> well, true. or would she? <laughs> <laughs> no uh, more Weight Watchers. Man, that's... It's Fantastic. funny though about cruises. Like cruises have get such a bad rap too, right? That's that's the other part of this that's kind of interesting, is uh, like people. You know, there's a lot of people who really despise cruises and find them cheesy and horrible. And I wonder in what sense that's going to reflect on the Oprah brand. You know, I I think you know I I'm not a fan of lazy vacations, which you know I realize I'm a bit of an outlier. Like I don't like sitting on the beach. Like I love skiing vacations or just stuff where you're doing something every day, and um, but I was kind of on board with a cruise idea once, and then I found out that like it's not all inclusive, like a you know a resort or something. You you have to pay for drinks, and for some reason that was like a deal breaker with me. I was like, no, if I'm gonna be stuck on a boat, I just want like unlimited access to alcohol. I don't want to have mm. to like pay money the whole time. I mean, the only news that ever comes out of cruises is is always bad. Also, oh yeah, whether it's a sinking or a food poisoning or I don't know, it's very odd. Yeah toilets not working i got yeah i i do associate it with with a disaster <laughs> exactly <laughs> well it's one of those it's kind of like bus travel right like it's supposedly the safest form of travel on earth but you only hear about it when you know it crashes or someone gets beheaded or whatever like you know it's only the most bizarre extreme stories that actually put it on your your radar uh, but the cruises, I felt like, got a slightly nice bump from the, uh, you know, the Viking River Cruises uh, sponsorship of Downton Abbey. Uh, you know, for those who were watching it early on, like you couldn't escape those. The the, uh, you know, because there were only two sponsors. I think it was it was them and Ralph Lauren. So if you were an early adopter of Downton Abbey, you got a lot of Viking River Cruise, and it did a lot for their business. Uh, we we reported at the time that they really. Uh, they put their name on the radar, and it really kind of boosted their business in a big way. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I think they're somewhat evolving, but it's definitely one. Every, t every time we cover this industry, it's like the theme is how they are struggling to stay relevant, how they are struggling to get past negative news about, you know, contamination or whatever it is. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's when you know your industry is in a hard spot, when, like, that's that's the, you know, the, the lead of every story that anyone writes about you. But... Uh, well, we will keep eye on this one and on Oprah's potential president run, uh, which it would be a much bigger story than her Alaska cruise. <laughs> the uh, other item we want to talk about is that a uh, new study came out from Media Radar uh, that estimates that about 37%, I believe about a third of publishers, are not properly disclosing their native ads, uh, their native content. The, uh, the FTC is not overly explicit with uh, what they want advertisers to do, publications like us uh, who run occasional native content, it just requires that, let's see, what is their phrasing, that it be uh, clear, clear and prominent disclosure. Uh, and so according to this Media Radar study uh, that looked at, uh, I believe, who are they? See, in our story, 13,000 brands uh, across print, TV, social media, newsletters, and other online properties. So pretty huge swath of uh, content that they looked at here and found that 37% are not compliant uh, with these guidelines. And uh, and it's something we certainly are very keenly aware of. Uh, I, I think we recently designed Adweek's new, uh, website, and I felt, and I've gotten some comments, that the disclosure on the native content is even better than it was before. It's, it's a little easier even to spot the difference between, uh, you know, branded content versus the overwhelming majority of, which is news content. Uh, but it's certainly something the publishing industry struggles with, and I think there is a 
you know, there is still some consumer concern that, uh, you know, brands are trying to hide this and publishers are trying to hide what's paid and what's not. Uh, Patrick, what, what, you know, do you think, how much of this do you think is intentional versus just kind of a slow evolution on the side of the industries? I think it's definitely a slow evolution on the FTC's part. It's um, them still sort of catching up to the digital media ecosystem. It's kind of like, um, it ties back to like, social media promotions. I know that for years there's been a lot of conversation primarily in the public relations industry about when uh, Kim Kardashian does a sponsored Instagram post, should she put hashtag ad on it? I mean, a lot of people, I think polling shows that a lot of younger people sort of, they see something like that and assume that it is a paid promotion. So uh, does anyone really care whether we make that clear? And the FTC has also been a little uneven in terms of, um, enforcing this kind of stuff. So I think that it's a lot of it is everyone sort of trying to figure out where it lies right now. Have you guys noticed that like the way that Instagrammers have gotten around this this whole awkwardness? It's one thing if you have to a, a promoted tweet is really obnoxious because you put hashtag ad in there. It eats up, you know, a pretty big swath of your I mean, it's only three characters, but still, it's, it's a lot more noticeable. But what's happening on Instagram is they're burying it within, like, 75 other hashtags at the bottom of the post. So it'll be, like, hashtag live your dreams, hashtag Malibu life, hashtag ad, hashtag. <laughs> I think that uh, what Patrick said is, is kind of interesting, that at this point, people so expect things to be an ad that you're starting to see people, you know, they, they might Instagram uh, a product that they really like and they go out of their way to hashtag not an ad um, because the <laughs> assumption is almost always that it is an ad. Um, something else that I think is interesting in the story we ran on this this week is that um, while, you know, a third of publi publishers are not complying, that number has really improved since just 2015. I think uh, two-thirds of publishers were not complying in 2015, and, and we've already seen a, a big increase. So while there's still a lot of work to go, I think native advertising is moving in the direction of disclosure. And I think that um, the FTC's case with Lord and Taylor last year had a big impact on that. I know Patrick wrote about it, but uh, if you guys remember, you know, there was a, an instance where Lord and Taylor had 50 influencers uh, wear the same dress and share it on social media. So it was very obvious, you know, ad play. Um, and they, none of the influencers uh, disclosed that it was an ad and, um, you know, the FTC FTC, I think, sort of made an example of them last year, but I think that that put everybody, you know, on on their heels and um, has has driven a lot of the compliance we're starting to see. Yeah, and I think the I think you're right that there is certainly this, you know, s skeptical awareness, I guess, uh, among the consumers uh, that they. You know, it's it's you pretty generally pretty easy. I think that's where the Lord and Taylor stuff. You know, I actually wrote about when that campaign first came out, and before the backlash about uh, about the disclosure. Uh, you know, I wrote about the fact that they sold out that dress uh, right away. You know, so it was <laughs> a very effective play. Uh, but those are admittedly very difficult posts to understand that it's sponsored. You know, versus <laughs> the, the the stereotypical ones you think of where they're like holding protein powder. <laughs> <laughs> like label facing the camera <laughs> and it's just like no no crap this is a sponsored post uh, but uh but yeah the the not an ad's kind of uh fascinating it's like the new no filter you know is <laughs> this one wasn't paid for <laughs> like no i genuinely like this product 
Uh, and we, we ran an interesting post. I, I should have pulled it up so I could remember the exact details, but uh, I, I believe it's on our Social Pro Daily blog, and we talked about how much different types of influencers are paid for their posts. Uh, and so, Steph, you might remember this one, um, but I believe number one were uh, models uh, were the the most compensated at like you know it was around four hundred dollars per post on average, uh, and then uh, and photographers do very well, uh, but then you get down to um, the you know musicians and some of these others just don't make as much. So it's a fascinating list. Uh, I definitely recommend if you're interested in you know how much uh, Instagrammers and influencers actually make, uh, dig up that Social Pro Daily post because uh, there's a handy chart in there showing the average amounts each one makes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think disclosure will continue to be a struggle. I think, uh, to Patrick's point, the FTC is uh, behind, and they also are somewhat toothless. I think they'll continue to be pretty toothless under this uh, current uh, administration in hopes of being more business friendly. Uh, but you know, you're right that uh, uh, Lord and Taylor is a good example of how they will, when they see a, an egregious violation, they'll come after it. But I, I, I think we'd all agree that under Trump, it probably will not be a really intense kind of a crackdown administration. But we shall see. All right, well, that's it for the news roundup. Uh, we're going to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, which is our ads worth watching. This is where uh, Tim Nudd gathers up the best of the week, the ads that are actually worth taking your time to sit through. And uh, now's time to hear what he found. All right, Tim, tell us what ads are worth watching this week. Well, we were going to talk a little bit about Oscars ads, but um, actually we had a special podcast on, on Monday. Uh, Christina Monlos, uh, Jason Lynch, and Charles Getz actually ran down a lot of that stuff. So uh, find that, that episode if you, if you guys want to hear more about the Oscars stuff. This, this week I wanted to chat, um, first of all, about these crazy new Burger King print ads that I'm sure you guys have seen. Um, I've never really seen anything like them. They're kind of... They're fun. They're also kind of strange, kind of provocative. Um, kind of curious what you guys think of them. There's three of them, and they were made by uh, David in Miami, which has done you know, really good work for Burger King, actually, I, I would say, in recent years. They did the Proud Whopper stuff. They've done a lot of interesting, um, really well-respected work. And so um, these, new, these three new ads, they actually use real photos of Burger King locations that are on fire. So these are, you know, there's firefighters on the scene. Uh, one photo's from Oregon, one's from Pennsylvania, one's from Italy. And, um, they, you know, the ads include the locations and the dates on the photos so that you realize that they're, they really are, um, they were originally sort of editorial photos of a, of a, you know, a fire in progress. They're not staged at all. And then the headline is uh, Flame Grilled Since 1954. <laughs> So, I don't know, I thought these were amazing. Like, showing your restaurant on fire, first of all, is, like, the most crazy idea. Um, it's pretty much the most unflattering way to show your place of business. Um, but, of course, they did it because it ties in so perfectly with Burger King's longtime positioning of, you know, never frying the burgers. They always flame, flame grilled them. And so, I don't know, when I saw these, I thought, wow, <laughs> that's pretty genius. That's, that's a brave client, first of all, to show their their restaurants on fire and uh and actually it, this whole campaign came out of a bit of research that apparently since 1954 um, more burger king restaurants have burned down than any other chain so i just thought it was kind of remarkable that they could take such an unpleasant you know data point and uh make such clever ads out of it and turn it into a unique sales proposition <laughs> <laughs> yeah what did you guys think of it I thought it was brilliant. Um, really, really great idea. Um, on on the other hand, we, we did a short uh, post on it on the agency spy blog, and 
readers kind of pulled a Trump. They responded, fake ad. And I think that their argument was that the even though the execution was great, the the people who actually see this work will primarily be um, people in media and people on um, award show juries, which may or may not be true. But I just thought that it was uh, a pretty, pretty interesting positioning for Burger King. But um, I guess the point being that most of the public probably won't see it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know. I'm uh, I'm talking to the agency this week, and I'm going to try to get a, a sense of of uh, exactly what the scope of the of the campaign was. The other criticism of this campaign is that uh, it makes makes light of fire prevention. I've actually I've got <laughs> I've gotten a couple of emails from from folks and, and people tweeting at me that this is not awesome. We I think we used awesome in the, in our headline and saying this is not awesome at all. This is irresponsible. You know, this is not. Uh, I, I, people making the point um, that a, a vast majority of fires in America are preventable and uh, you know, celebrating and, and exploiting and making money off of visuals of, of, uh, of tr- tragic fires um, is not the, maybe the best idea. So, I mean, that's, that's part of the whole thing, though, is, is that Burger King sh- surely um, knew of the potential downsides here and, and went for it anyway. And I think it's sort of a triumph of a, of a clever idea over the legal department. I mean, this is not this is not tremendously different, right, thematically from uh, Harvey Nichols' shoplifters ad, which won uh, Grand Prix at Cannes. Uh, you know, that was an ad with real footage of shoplifters stealing from the store. Uh, so I think the same criticisms you could have, uh, honestly, are even more valid of the Harvey Nichols one because it really does celebrate shoplifting in a certain way. I mean, obviously, at the end of the ad, they all get caught. Uh, and it's an ad about why you don't need to shoplift because uh, you can get freebies from their rewards program or whatever. But... You know, I think that's one where you'd have a slightly better argument. This, these are accidents, and so it's like, yeah, I guess it's preventable, but it's it's hard to get too upset. Mm-hmm. I thought uh, one funny thing too is like, you know, obviously the the idea is to is to reference flame grilling, but half these fires happen because of faulty circuits and you know, like a wire, like light switches and things like that. So it's uh, definitely uh, artistic license. Don't ruin the illusion, Tim. <laughs> So anyway, I like that. Um, another one I want to talk about was this new Honda um, Honda spot out of England uh, from Widen and Kennedy London. Of course, this is a client agency team that's done you know such great work over the years. You go back to the Cog ad from 2003, the Impossible Dream campaign. Uh, it's very very fruitful creative relationship there. And so they have this new 90 second spot for the Civic, and it's got a pretty interesting metaphor about the challenges of of uh, automotive engineering. So it it shows basically this woman on a free climb, climbing this giant uh, rock face that's made of clay. And um, there's not much, not much goes on. She's just kind of climbing up this thing. And and you, you see here and there like images of the, of the civic kind of in the rock face. And so um, the climber is actually a British, I believe she's an Olympic climber named Imogen Horrocks. And it's it's really really eye catching commercial and it's kind of quiet and uh, you know the, 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 you know the metaphor is really about how Honda engineers kind of you know push their designs to the limit and that sort of thing and if you, if you if you notice a lot of car commercials I believe even one on the Super Bowl this year um, you know they do show people you know the engineers kind of carving or the artists carving into clay when they talk about the designs of the car so this really just takes that and puts it on a really a really grand scale uh it was directed by pedro martin calero through colonel blimp and i really liked it i thought it was um one of the most visually interesting car ads we've seen this year and we're, we're going to have a story up on it uh, hopefully 
later today. We've got Gabe uh, Gabriel Beltran writing a story as we speak. So the the timing on this one's kind of interesting because literally just a few days ago, um, there was a 19-year-old climber named Margot Hayes uh, who became the first woman to climb basically the, the most difficult possible kind of climbing, uh, free freehand climbing route. I'm not a climber, so the terminology doesn't mean anything to me. For those who do, it's a 5.15. If you care that much and you understand it, you probably have already heard this story. Uh, but I saw that getting passed around quite a bit because this was... Um, there's kind of been this trend of uh, women climbers really kind of uh, breaking through a lot of these uh, difficulty levels. And, and so I just I, I was seeing those headlines kind of just as uh, that ad was coming through. So mm. kind of interesting timing. Yeah, on that that's point. really cool. And I, th I thought it was a, a really nice departure for a car commercial to not show someone driving the car. You know, it's like the main person in the ad is is rock climbing, and we never see her in the car, um, which I thought made it really interesting. I know, you know, during the, the Super Bowl, um, one of the execs who was in the newsroom watching the ads with us, um, you know, commented on how just sort of, you know, staid and boring car commercials tend to be. It's like, how many times can you see, like, someone behind the wheel of a car taking a sharp turn, you know, down a cliff? And, and this was just something completely different. And for that reason, it really caught my attention. Yeah, the Alfa Romeo ads on the Super Bowl would have, would have depressed you. It would have depressed yes. anybody. <laughs> yes. I mean, there were, a few, you, you, there were a few on the Super Bowl that were decent, but uh, not the Alfa Romeo stuff. Are you saying that like cars driving across salt flats is not super exciting? It's not that breakthrough. No, I never get I never get tired of that. I don't remember if there were actually salt flats in the in the Alfa Romeo spots. I just when I think of like the most stereotyped, you know, ad, car ads, it's always just tearing across salt flats for no reason, as one does. <laughs> or driving on cobblestone streets in uh, yeah. West Chelsea. <laughs> right that's cadillac right yeah yes. every single ad they make every cadillac or, ad, yeah. or dumbo brooklyn yeah that's hilarious well and, and the final campaign i wanted to mention um was the new drogo 5 london work for uniqlo which is the japanese clothing company so they have a new campaign out i believe drogo 5 new york did their campaign last year and they've moved that work to london now and there there's a, a three new spots that are that have the theme because of life we made lifewear and so lifewear is a new line of products from Uniqlo that, that I guess is sort of more casual clothing that, that moves better on you and, and breathes better and, and that kind of thing. And so there's three specific products that they're pitching here. There's wireless bras, there's breathable undergarments, and there's distressed denim jeans. And each of them get their own spot. And uh, it's kind of hard to describe them. It's almost better just to watch them. But um, they're very, very different from each other. The, 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 one, the one about the wireless bras shows a bunch of women um, dancing and in, in very strange ways. And, and it's really, really fun. Uh, it's got the, the song Ants by, I think, the, is it Starcrawler? Is that the name of the band? Um, very, very cool song. And it, it almost reminded me of the, uh, the Kenzo film from last year with Margaret Qualley in it. And uh, it's it's a really cool cool spot. There's another one that's just very very atmospheric. It's it's about the breathable uh, undergarments and it's it's got these people kind of frozen in time with with steam coming off them. Uh, very cool spot there too. And then there's a third ad for the distressed denim that takes place at a uh, gas station. Uh, a woman kind of dancing in a gas station and a guy comes up to fill his car and it's it kind of harks back I think to a lot of the kind of old uh, Levi's kind of stuff and. and 
you know, it was really interesting to me just to see how, how different all the, all three of these ads were. And I thought they were, they were very, you know, artistic and beautifully done. And, uh, Angela, our writer, um, on ad freak did a really nice, nice job of, of summing up all three. And, and she really argued that they, they kind of date back to a time when, you know, you didn't have to make such a targeted pitch and you can just show something beautiful and, and tell a story like that. And, and that's really what this campaign is. So I was, I was pretty impressed by it. Well, I, I liked that it was a, a, you know, in August we wrote about Uniqlo's first uh, global campaign, which they also did with Droga. And, you know, you would think this partnership of Uniqlo, which is a very bizarre brand, their marketing is really fascinating, uh, especially in Japan. Uh, and then Droga, you know, this like creative leader, you would think it would just be this really off the wall, amazing stuff. And it was so boring. You know, it was like a meditation on why people wear clothes. I mean, I was just like, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was this was a nice like change of pace to what more of what I had expected originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, really really eye catching, and, and the fact that they had made three different spots like this, and they're all they're all very different genres. I think it, you know it just felt very fresh. I have to say, I loved the one on the wireless bra. I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, Angela made the point that it was like a throwback to the to the Gap's khaki swing commercials from 1998, and I would describe this ad like a cross between khaki swing and Netflix's The OA. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you've, got, nice. you've, you've got these really classically dressed women doing a group dance. Um, feels almost old-fashioned, but then their dance moves are totally modern and strange, like the movements from the OA. And I, I thought that that was really smart. And I think it's an interesting parallel to look at what Uniqlo is doing versus what the Gap, what Gap was doing in the 90s um, because they have a similar mission. They're selling, you know, kind of wardrobe basics with a slightly cool twist at an affordable price point. Um, and as someone who was a Gap girl in the 90s, I have to tell you, those ads were super effective. People would come into the store all the time asking for those khakis. So I think that um, these Uniqlo ads definitely, when I watched them, made me want to wear the clothes. Well, Tim, thank you, as always, for rounding up the ads worth watching each week. Uh, It's time to move on to our big discussion of the week. This week's uh, cover story was uh, kind of had two components. One was uh, how brands and marketers and agencies are kind of learning from uh, Trump's election from the, I, I guess some see as the resurgence of middle America, uh, the red state impact, uh, and better understanding those. Patrick wrote those, so he'll be here to talk about that. Uh, we also had a roundup of what we call the agencies 3.0, uh, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, just a list of kind of the most innovative agencies and what they're doing in terms of their structure or their focus or how they are, some for some of the older shops, how they're reimagining themselves and evolving for some of the newer shops, how they're starting uh, from day one. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the cover story, which uh, was somewhat uh, eye-catching. We had a, a, a Trump hat uh, with, that said, Make Agencies Great Again, uh, which uh, was, uh, you know, obviously a little attention-grabbing. Uh, but, uh, Patrick, you were on this. First, tell us about this tour you were on and what, what, the, what the goal of it was. Well, I traveled down to Nashville to visit an agency called the New Heartland Group, which has been around since about 2001. And sort of their their main principle is that a lot of advertisers either intentionally or not skip over a lot of the people who had previously been grouped into, quote-unquote, middle America. 
And I think that the, a lot of people are moving away from that classification now, thinking that it's probably uh, oversimplifies things. But the, the idea is that both agency leaders and client CMOs alike sometimes operate at a distance from a, a group that makes up a large share of their consumers. And that's the, what the president of the agency, Paul Jankowski, argues, that they should at the very least sort of acknowledge that these people do exist, that they are unique individuals, and they do have influence and buying power. And this is especially true after the election because uh, the general consensus that I got speaking to a lot of different agency leaders is that there was confusion and, and even shock on election night. Um, I think that they, both agencies and clients had a sense that they knew where the country was headed, and it turned out that they were wrong, just as a lot of journalists and a lot of pollsters were wrong. And, you know, we can get into talking about how wrong they were exactly and uh, the fact that Hillary Clinton won more votes than Trump. But the point being generally that they had plans for where they were going to go, and now a lot of them are still sort of in this kind of, okay, let's regroup and figure out what we need to change about our strategy moving forward phase. I, I think it's a really an interesting initiative by the New Heartland Group. I, I'm I think like a, probably a lot of readers, and as the tone of, of your write-up also came across, I, healthily skeptical um, because, I mean, it's not like they took uh, this crowd out to, you know, a gas station outside of Topeka. You know, they, they Nashville is a, a blue dot in a red state, and uh, it sounds like you guys were kind of hitting up more of an urban. Was, was that just their attempt at kind of a soft introduction to some of this stuff versus just driving you out to the real heartland? or <laughs> I think that, that in part, yes. I think that it's kind of like, you know, you dip your toe in rather than just kind of going out camping for three days. Although uh, they do a little bit of that in the more extensive uh, immersion tours, as they call them. Um, and, and you're right that one of the things that struck me about Nashville was that a lot of the places we went were would be perfectly fine in Brooklyn. They would just have about one-fifth of the square footage and the prices would probably be a little higher on everything. Um, but, you know, at the end of the night, I was still able to drink a Campari cocktail and look across the bar and see the guy from Entourage hanging out. So it, it was. But the, the point being that it's still sort of a new world for a lot of people who CMOs who live in Manhattan and who they, they feel like they get these research reports and, you know, they talk to their agency and they feel like they understand all these people who live in the great middle, but a lot of the messaging kind of goes over these people's heads. At least that's how they perceive it. They think that the brands and that the people behind these brands don't really understand them, don't address them directly. And so they kind of tune it out. And that was the parallel really with the Trump campaign because polling and market research are obviously not the same thing. You can't say Clinton voters prefer Crest while Trump voters prefer Colgate. I mean, that's, that's not... It's not quite right, but in both cases, there is, as a lot of agency strategists told me, there's a tendency to kind of oversimplify, to put people in these respective buckets and say, okay, we're going to dig deeper in there and figure out, you know, the behaviors of this person and what shows they watch and et cetera, et cetera. But the real risk then lies in just, overgeneralizing and having these messages that 
like I was saying before, go over their heads. And I think that there is a conscious effort to move away from that. Stephanie, you're uh, from uh, Arizona. I, I lived in Phoenix as well in a similar area. It's a very conservative area. Um, what, what What's your take on this initiative as someone who's who's from a a red state? I mean, Arizona is admittedly a bit of a, a snowbird state, but uh, but still, I mean, what, do, do you see this as a fruitful kind of pursuit? I, I think it's interesting. I mean, yeah, someone who, as someone who grew up in Phoenix and lives in, in Brooklyn, um, I do find, you know, that, like, my Facebook feed, for instance, is like a tale of two cities, you know? <laughs> um, people have really, you know, starkly different opinions, and a lot of times it can fall along geographic lines. Not always. That's a, that's a generalization, of course. But, um, yeah, uh, and I, I do think, you know, a lot of us, uh, who lived on the coast the day after the election found ourselves asking, like, where where do I live? Do I even understand my country anymore? And so it makes sense that advertisers, marketers, you know, brands would be waking up the day after the election asking the same thing. And I think it's really interesting that you have, you know, um, agencies or consultants kind of popping up to fill that need and answer that question. Um, I think it's one thing to look at data points, and it's another to actually immerse yourself in a culture. So in general, I, I actually think it's a pretty intriguing idea. I mean, some of the data points that came out of Patrick's story I thought were pretty interesting. Um, you know, that you know people in, in the quote-unquote heartland are more likely to get married and have children sooner, whereas people on the coast are more likely to have an advanced degree. People in the heartland spend more time on Facebook and watch live TV, whereas, you know, on the coast, spend time on Instagram and streaming services. Um, so I think, like, all marketers have that kind of data at their fingertips, but then to actually go and meet people and humanize the data points and uh, start to develop creative around that makes a ton of sense to me. And in a way, we're talking about bringing you know, geographic diversity um, into our advertising creative, bringing different perspectives into advertising creative. I think often when we think about diversity, we think of gender and race, um, but geography is like an interesting thing to throw into the mix. You know, I, I'm that I, I'm that obnoxious guy that talks to everybody on the airplane because I always like, you know, hearing what they say. And, and, you know, one recurring thing I've heard and, and that made this made me think about is the practical reality of of politics versus the way that I think a lot of people picture it is when you talk about something like the EPA and people being opposed to the EPA and we think that means that people are anti-global warming or that, you know, and, and they might be, but it's to them it's a practical reality of when you're forced to buy a new catalytic converter for that costs more than the value of the truck you're replacing it on or when these kind of federal policies and regulations that are forced on you as an independent farmer or as, uh, you know, someone who's a small business owner, but they're not really applied or enforced on major companies or on a certain, because of, you know, they can afford lobbyists. And, uh, and you know, I, I've talked to a lot of small business owners lately on flights and while traveling who say, you know, for me, I voted for Trump because, uh, I, you know, I, I need my taxes lower. I can't afford an increase in the minimum wage because I would have to lay off, you know, three or four of my employees. You know, it's it humanizes those conversations, humanize those issues in a way that that talking about them on Twitter, you're never going to because people aren't going to be honest, uh, you know, because they're going to be afraid of backlash. Um, but I think I think there's a lot more nuance that you get by being there in person and talking to these people in a comfortable setting. Well, I will say that w one of the things that that really that I took away from it was that there's a lot of disagreement between agencies in terms of how to respond to this. I mean, like 
the New Heartland group, they've kind of been making this point for years. It's not really a new thing. They just kind of see it as the fact that Trump was elected and that it shocked so many people gives them a chance to sort of restate their selling point to their clients. But within the different agencies, some of them said, hey, you know, we've been doing immersion for a long time. We do it, you know, different varieties of it. Whereas a lot of them are like, that sounds interesting, but we're not really sure what you're talking about. And uh, I even spoke to one agency executive who said, essentially, my clients don't care about reaching these people. And my first thought was, something tells me your clients would not agree with that. So it's, I see a lot of agencies positioning themselves, not necessarily changing what they do, certainly not in a dramatic way, but having a response. When the clients ask them, what are you going to do? to address this newly divided country and they have to have they have their own different ways of responding and i think that we'll figure out in the coming years which are the most effective yeah right when i was in the agency world one of my clients was little debbie you know the snack brand they were a great client to work with and my agency had had that account for 50 years um but uh, they're based in collegedale tennessee uh, which is outside of chattanooga it's a very small town uh i I think there may be one employer larger, like a college, um, but pretty much Little Debbie McKee Foods, the parent company, is the the major employer there. And I really do think that being based in that area, it's very conservative. It's a Seventh-day Adventist community, basically, so, um, you know, very socially conservative, uh, very kind of traditional, hardworking, small town. And I really do think that had a huge impact on the culture, on the marketing, and this the kind of awareness of their customer. That's obviously a brand that... You know, most of their customers aren't, they don't have a lot of disposable income. And so this is a small luxury. And I remember when they raised prices, uh, you know, it was to me what seemed like an insignificant, insignificant amount, like from 40 cents to 50 cents. And it was a huge thing. And, you know, things that had been 25 cents at the convenience store were now 50 cents. And to me and you, you know, that's okay, 50 cents. It's it's nothing. That's still cheaper than 99% of the stuff you can buy in a, in a store but they were very keenly aware that this is not a small deal, uh, you know, that for their consumer base, because those are the people they surrounded themselves with every day uh, and, and that were working for them. So, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit to being uh, for a brand, for being for an agency, being kind of immersed in that uh, life, you know, lifestyle, I guess. I don't know what to call it. Um, you know, pretty much every day. So it's a, it's a fascinating read. I definitely, we could talk about this for quite a while, but I would just encourage everybody to check out Patrick Coffey's uh, story on uh, how brands are, are learning in a post-Trump America. Uh, it's, a, it's on adweek.com. And I, the other thing I wanted to still leave time to talk about was our list of the Agency 3.0 uh, kind of honorees. Uh, it's not so much an award program, but just something that we wanted to uh, acknowledge some of the agencies that uh, are trying new things. Uh, I, I don't want to just kind of list them all, but we can talk about a few. Stephanie, were there any that jumped out at you as kind of being an interesting business model? Yeah, there were, there were a few that jumped out at me. I mean, one is there, there was a really interesting quote in our story from an executive at IFC Olson uh, who said, you know, uh, because we're, we're sort of a newer company, we're not mired by old legacy systems that we can't get rid of. And so I think certainly some common threads we saw among people on, you know, agencies on this list are that a lot of them are young. You know, a lot of them are younger than me. Um, they're, they're small. And because of that, they're able to adapt really quickly, um, you know, to, to changing digital trends. 
Um, I think that 360i is a pretty interesting case study. They're less than 20 years old. They started as SEO specialists in 1998 when that was, you know, really kind of a big merging field. Um, they 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 moved into social around 2005 brand strategy, and then last year became a full-service agency. And rather than saying, like, okay, we're no longer an SEO agency, we're now social specialists, um, they really took more of an iterative snowball effect. Um, you know, so they sort of retained what they learned each step along the way until they got to a point where they had a really, you know, robust uh, list of services and specialties to offer clients. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, one of the, the, our story calls out a lot of um, pretty cool, you know, creative campaigns that have come out of these agencies. And I, for me, my favorite uh, was something that came out this month from FCB6 in Toronto. And they, they worked with Drug-Free Kids Canada to come up with this campaign called The Call That Comes After. And essentially, parents can go to this website called thecallthatcomesafter.com and create a custom video for a teenager, so like for their son or daughter, um, about uh, and, and basically send a video to, to their kid about the dangers of drunk driving. It's personalized, it has the kid's name in it, it comes from the parents, and as the kid's watching the video, um, these texts start showing up on the screen, like frantic texts from a parent about like, where are you, what happened to you? And then suddenly those, those texts jump from the screen to their actual cell phones. They start getting texts on their cell phones. So um, the, the campaign really comes to life like in a very personal way. I thought that that was pretty brilliant. Um, and it's an example of an agency that's able to create really custom content um, and mobile first, text first content that's reaching multiple generations and they're doing it at scale. Patrick, you were, uh, I mean, obviously aware of some of the larger ones here, like 360i, but were there any others on this list that, that you had kind of noticed in, in recent years? Um, yeah, there was Phenomenon we've heard a little bit about uh, recently. I mean, it was kind of, as our write-up said, it was launched by traditional ad people, but now they're big on strategy. I know that they took part in a piece that ran, I think, maybe a month ago about um, consultancies competing with creative agencies, which kind of goes back to what, what I, one of the main things I took from the agencies 3.0 piece was that it's so much of it now is data analytics and media buying, is, which is where the, the big money is and what sets so many agencies apart. I mean, even though the, the, the creative has to be good, but um, I mean, that's so much of it is, is what really drives these campaigns and what really... Um, what really leads the work for the client. I, you know, I feel like to me the recurring theme of this, and it's one we've certainly noticed quite a bit, is it, it harkens back a bit to the Marshall McLuhan, kind of like the medium is the message type thing. But the media aspect, you know, it used to be you came, came up with a creative concept and you kind of had this 30-second spot or this one-minute anthem in mind, and then the rest of the creative was built out from that. Uh, and I really, uh, for years we've been talking about moving beyond that. There's been books about, you know, life beyond the 30-second spot. Uh, but I feel like we really are in that dynamic now where and these newer agencies aren't beholden to that because they're not, uh, you know, they don't have these existing clients who have just been putting out a, a new 30 every few months and, you know, expecting to hear kind of similar uh, campaigns. These are ones who have to have, they have to be as media savvy uh, as they are creative savvy. And uh, half the time it's, you know, 50-50. Uh, and so 
I personally wonder what that's going to do to this model of we've always had creative agencies and media agencies off to the side. And we're starting to hear more and more our awards that we do for media plan of the year. Uh, and some of those other features are really starting to highlight. You know, we saw this with MailChimp's uh, 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 fail. What, what did they, Tim, remind me, what was it called again? Was it, the, was it fail shrimp or something? They did, they did a bunch yeah, they, of them. Yeah, so they did a bunch of these kind of pun pieces like failed chips and uh, kale limp. And, and so it was this whole, I, I forget exactly what they called the the, uh, the overall campaign. But, um, you know, the, the physical, me- like I, I visited uh, MailChimp the other day while I was in Atlanta. And they, they literally gave me a bag of the failed chips, uh, which are, are <laughs> crushed uh, barbecue potato chips. <laughs> they're already crushed like in in the bag and to me that is you know we're all chuckling about that because that is the best part like the fact that they're called failed chips or that it has a cool design that's like somewhat funny but the fact that it's literally a bag of broken chips <laughs> is to me the best part um and so you know that was one where i you know i really feel like you really saw that that media strategy was as it was very central and that was two different agencies working very closely together but this 3.0 list makes me wonder how long that two-prong agency approach is really going to last. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, a big part of what the agency 3.0 idea is, is that, you know, it's no longer, as you say, coming up with a TV idea and translating it for digital and translating it for print and all that stuff. It's really just about where where the creative idea takes you and what the business solution is. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's a an event. Maybe it's a mural on a building. Maybe, you know, I think that the, you know, the business proposition uh, for a lot of these agencies d- defines the creative and you know it wasn't hasn't always been that way it's always been much more um, rigorously separated than that so yeah I mean I hadn't heard of, of several of the shops on this list actually so that's always a good sign too which is to see you know these these newer places and how they're approaching um, their clients business problems and I thought uh, there's quite a bit of inspiring stuff in here I was also interested to see how some of these agencies are bending and breaking the traditional creative process. Like Greatest Common Factory in Austin, um, essentially, you know, it sounds like they're doing away with the idea of the traditional pitch of a creative idea to an agency, and instead they're bringing the CMO of the brand into the creative process. And that person is part of, you know, the brainstorming session. They're on set, you know, filming filming the commercial, um, and so they're really creating the campaign together rather than pitching the client. And they said that the advantage of that is that they can move much faster. You know, instead of coming up with an idea, pitching, waiting for a response, tweaking it, you know, they've got the brand person on the ground from day one. Well, definitely check out the Agency 3.0 list on adweek.com. And uh, and again, Patrick's cover story this week on how brands and marketers are learning uh, from, you know, the post-Trump America or I guess Trump America. Um, and uh, coming soon, we've got quite a few things. We've got our South by Southwest coverage, which is coming terrifyingly fast. Uh, and we're also going to have a special package of articles about Atlanta uh, as part of our City Spotlight series, where we look at uh, markets that are really booming and uh, resurging as uh, brand hubs. And we've got some really fascinating content coming out of that one. So I'm, I'm especially excited. Uh, that'll be coming, I believe, March 20. Uh, so keep an eye on adweek.com for that. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review or at least just give us a certain number of stars. You can just kind of click on them on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help uh, new listeners discover the podcast. So 
I did want to share uh, one little, uh, this is a somewhat personal note, uh, but uh, the industry lost a uh, figure this, this week. I don't know, honestly, how well-known he was beyond uh, certain circles, but in which he was quite influential, a man named David Finch, who was the director of content for Doe Anderson in Louisville, Kentucky. He passed away very unexpectedly this week. Uh, he was a father, you know, quite young. Uh, and I know that among my niche of people who are really active in the digital content industry and social media, he is considered a highly respected and really admired uh, guy and just generally a great, great guy. Uh, so my heart definitely goes out to his family and uh, just wanted to comment on that because uh, David was someone who was uh, very well respected and will be greatly missed. So sorry to end on a bummer, but I wanted to uh, send out uh, some thoughts on him. And uh, so... Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back uh, next week, and we'll talk to you then. 